Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, author of a new subscription newsletter on Substack, Eyes on the Right, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is senior editor at The Dispatch, David French, also contributor to The Atlantic and many other places, and I would have to say one of the most indispensable commentators writing in America today. So welcome one and all. We are back from a variety of trips and occasions, so it's nice to all be back together. I wish that we had happier things to discuss, though, you know, we could talk about Queen Elizabeth's Jubilee, but (laughs) there isn't too much to say about that. So let's talk about America's disease, which is gun violence and specifically mass shootings. So as we speak, they are just cleaning up after the latest mass shooting that occurred in Tulsa, five people dead, including the shooter, right on the heels of Uvalde, which was in turn right on the heels of Buffalo. And I'm going to start with you, Damon, because there are so many aspects of this, but I am struck by the cultural illnesses that seem to be prevalent in our society, the kind of worship of guns that is far beyond the old-fashioned kind of, everybody should have the right to have a gun in their house to defend themselves and their families. It's gotten to the point where it's almost a um, sacrilegious kind of worship of the gun itself. There's really no issue in our politics that makes me feel greater despair than this one. Part of that is just the experience of having lived through so many of these over the years and observed the process that gets repeated every time where there's a terrible heartbreaking event where people die when it's little kids in an elementary school. It's the worst, but it's always bad. And then there's outrage and anguish and expressions of thoughts and prayers with the victims and We clean up and we talk about doing something about it. And at least since the 1990s, we really haven't done anything. And it seems to become increasingly impossible to imagine us doing anything. And I think one reason, big reason, and a deep American reason why, as you indicated, Mona, it has to do with very deep-seated American things, uh, elements of our national psyche, if you will, and how they interact with more recent changes in our political culture. So deep in the American past, in our kind of civil religion, we have these two kind of traditions that point toward arming oneself. One is kind of classical liberalism, and that's what informs the Second Amendment, at least a good part of it and the way it's been interpreted constitutionally, the notion that as an individual, you have a right to bear arms, to defend yourself and your family, and the government is supposed to be precluded from transgressing that right, which is the case with all fundamental rights, as with speech and worship. But 
this is one that obviously has the effect of allowing people to stockpile weapons in their homes and to buy a weapon pretty much at will through certain restrictions that have been imposed in various states and by the federal government over the years. But pretty much you have this fundamental constitutional right to do this if you wish. I don't, for instance, I don't have any guns, but I could if I wanted to. I could get them and that would be protected by the Constitution. But there's also this other tradition of classical republicanism, which has a more positive vision that actually one probably ought to own a gun or two or more in order to kind of take on the responsibility of your own liberty and defending yourself with the notion being that the more that an active citizenry does this kind of thing for itself, the more freedom people will have because the government won't have to step in and go so far to protect us. It's a kind of vision of an active armed citizenry, and that informs some of the language in the Second Amendment about a militia that was a kind of 18th century version of this classical republicanism. Now, these have been in force, obviously, for a very long time in American history, but in more recent decades, the sort of progressive side, the liberal side of the spectrum has moved away from both. So Democrats are now much less inclined to buy into either of these aspects of our civil religion at the same time that trust has collapsed. And so what you have are the conservative side of the spectrum, which still does buy into these elements of our civil religion, of an armed citizenry and a right to bear arms, combined with a real suspicion that any attempt to regulate this, limit it, rein it in, is a kind of tyrannical impulse by Democrats who just want to confiscate all our guns and substitute government power for these alternative older visions of an armed citizenry. And you put these things together and what you end up with is a kind of blockade where we can't seem to agree enough on the need for solutions to get very much done. Now, I I look forward to hearing, I know Bill and David both have talked and written about, you know, slightly more hopeful takes on where we might be at the moment, things that might be done. But I guess I'm a little despairing uh, at the prospects for, first of all, getting very much accomplished, or if we do, it being so small that it won't really make much of a difference. So I'll, with that, I'll shut my mouth. <laughs> David French, one of the things that you hear a lot is that because we have so many guns in circulation, we have more guns than we have people in this country. And so people say, well, In light of that, any effort to make it more difficult to get guns is hopeless because there are all these guns in circulation. But in my most recent column, I went through a list of 22 recent mass shootings going back to 2012. And in 20 out of 22 of those cases, the shooters went out and bought their guns right before they committed their atrocities. Okay. And I posit that If these men who tend to be loners, who tend to be impulsive, they tend to have poor social skills, 
if they had to navigate some other system of obtaining a gun, if it weren't so easy for them to just walk into a store because they're the correct age and they have an ID and buy a gun, it might actually inhibit some of this. What do you make of that? I got bad news. Um, There's a really valuable RAND Corporation site where they have examined basically a study of studies of all kinds of gun control measures, all kinds of proposals to deal with various kinds of gun violence, because we're talking each different category of gun violence really is its own thing, whether it's suicides or what you might call more common street crime or domestic violence or mass shootings. And they've taken a look at the gun policy effects on mass shootings. And what's really, really sad is that we have a lot of years to study mass shootings now. There was a recent 50-year-long study of mass shootings in the United States. And what they found is they looked at background checks, bans on assault weapons, bans on high-capacity magazines, child access prevention laws, concealed carry laws, firearm sales reporting, recording, and registration requirements, licensing and permitting requirements, minimum age requirements, standard ground laws, and waiting periods, and found no qualifying studies showing that any of these provisions decreased mass shootings. One of the reasons why that would be, I think, is found in one of the most important things ever written about mass shootings, which is a 2015 piece in The New Yorker by Malcolm Gladwell, where he compared mass shootings to a slow motion riot that In essence, what had happened is that each mass shooting lowers the threshold for the next mass shooting. And that what ends up happening with a lot of these things, one of the reasons why these various uh, gun control measures are not all that effective is that these are among the most meticulously planned crimes that occur in the United States. So you can see them, for example, happening in California, which has universal background checks, a May issue per regime, a 10-round magazine limit a 10-day waiting period, an assault weapons ban. And they'll happen in a place like Oklahoma or Texas where there's much more lax laws. And so a lot of these laws that sort of nibble around the edges, there's no real evidence that they have any effect on mass shootings at all. In fact, one of the most recent ones, the awful Buffalo mass shooting, the killer bought a weapon that was compliant with New York law and then modified it. And so I think that's one of the things that's so frustrating and heartbreaking among the many things that are frustrating and heartbreaking about mass shootings is that we then often pop into a debate about the same policy menu of laws that if we now have 50 years of experience with various kinds of them and they don't really have a material effect, one of the reasons why I have really emphasized the red flag law concept, because unlike a lot of these laws, which you're, when you look at the red flag concept, it's actually responding precisely to a phenomenon that we see constantly in mass shootings, which is the way the National Institute for Justice study phrased it. These killers leak their plans. They broadcast their plans. And we just don't have good tools for dealing with that. David, I'm for red flag laws too, but I want to press you a little bit on this topic because when you look back retrospectively at the shooters, you say, oh, look, I mean, they came to the attention of public health authorities. 
they said all these things that were inflammatory or threatening or whatever. Now we can see, wow, how could anybody have missed it? But how many people say all those things and then do not do anything? And so I just wonder whether we are overstating our capacity to predict who's going to be violent, to identify them, to know exactly which warning signs to pay attention to and so forth. Yeah. You know, I think one of the issues with red flag laws is education. Do people even know they exist? So you can't even use a law that you don't know exists. Another one is under what circumstances it granted. And I think it's a mistake to say it is granted under the circumstance where we're predicting a mass shooting. It is better to say it is granted under the circumstance where someone has indicated that they might be a threat to themselves or others. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you are trying to predict a pre-crime sort of analysis. It is instead rooted in certain kinds of conduct and behavior that maybe a hundred people do this and only one of them would go on to attempt a mass shooting or a thousand people do it and only one would go on and attempt to do a mass shooting. But of that hundred or of that a thousand, 100 out of 100 or 1000 out of 1000 have indicated by their behavior that this is not the kind of person who needs to be possessing a weapon. So I think that the real key is not to say, okay, the red flag law is predicting who's going to be a mass shooter. Instead, Mm -hmm. the red flag law is identifying who is indicating that they're a threat to themselves and others. And so it has a lot of spillover effect for domestic violence, for example. It has a spillover effect for suicide. It has a spillover effect even for common street crime in some ways. We can't think of it as, This is the legal mechanism that predicts a mass shooter and takes a gun away from him. Mm -hmm. What you say is this is a legal measure that identifies people exhibiting behavior that disqualifies them from gun ownership. Florida passed a red flag law after the Parkland shooting and also raised the age limit for purchasing a rifle to 21. And they've issued, I think, close to 8,000 red flag orders. I think about 2,800 are in effect right now. That doesn't mean that there's 2,800 future school shooters that have been stopped. It means there's 2,800 people who, by their behavior, have indicated that it's an unacceptable risk to themselves and the community that they own a gun. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Linda, one of the frustrating aspects of this is the problem of Republicans being unwilling to consider anything that isn't more guns. Arming teachers putting uh, bulletproof vests on teachers or restricting the number of entrances to a school, which, you know, I wonder how that would manage in a fire code situation, but whatever, I guess if it locks from the outside, you know, you can still push out, maybe that'd be okay. But look, doesn't it strike you that there is just this unbelievable rigidity about the possibilities And didn't Uvalde put to rest forever the absurd idea that the answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, (laughs) with all of those police officers standing there for the agonizing hour and however many minutes they did? Look, we have a real problem, I believe, in the conservative movement and the Republican Party. There is a new holy trinity, God, guns, and Trump. That is the hill on which Republican politicians on the right will die, 
you know, I agree with David that certain laws will not necessarily stop the next mass shooting. But I will tell you that when you have Republican politicians who somehow think it's really cool to send out a Christmas card with their six-year-old holding an AR-15 or their 10-year-old, you know, holding some other weapon or every single member of their family holding guns, as Lauren Bobart from Colorado did, as Thomas Massey from Kentucky did, and as so many candidates who are running for office in 2022 have done. And and this, by the way, has been compiled on Twitter by Ron Filipkowski, who was a longtime Republican. And he actually started collecting all of the ads that featured Republicans and their big guns. This is sick. I'm sorry. It's sick. I do not understand. You know, we used to send out Christmas cards, peace and goodwill. This was a time to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And now, no, we send out pictures with AR-15s. I mean, we have to start calling it what it is. It's sick. It's bizarre. It's wacko. And it is absolutely true that this pervasiveness of the gun culture within certain segments of rural America and the Republican Party is doing harm. And I say this, as I've said on the show many times, as a gun owner, as somebody Mm -hmm. who's shot a gun, as somebody who has used a gun for self-protection, who doesn't want my 357 Magnum or my 38 revolver taken away from me, but I don't send out Christmas cards with those guns on my hip. The whole idea of red flag laws I think they're a good thing. I think the attitude ought to be what we had at the early part of the war on terror. See something, say something. This young man in Uvalde was threatening girls online, who was threatening to rape them, who was very violent in his talk, who was personally violent in his interactions with people. He goes into a gun store three times before the shooting. The first time to buy his first AR-15, the second time to buy over 300 rounds of ammunition, and the third time to buy a second AR-15. Why didn't somebody in the store sort of say, "Hmm, this sort of odd, this 18-year-old kid, you know? They didn't say it's odd because it's part of the culture in that part of the world. And I frankly, and I know I'm going to get a lot of heat for this, I'm fed up with it. I just am. All right, we will find out in a minute whether uh, Bill Galston is also fed up, but first we're going to take this brief break. All right, there are only two more weeks left for Genucel's summer clearance sale. So to take advantage of that and save 60% off Genucel's most popular package, you have to go to genucel.com. Order today and get Genucel's dark spot corrector to visibly reduce those pesky dark sunspots free. The Genucel Dark Spot Corrector uses special peptides to visibly reduce the appearance of dark spots, age spots, and yes, even sunspots that summer leaves behind. Genucel has been family-owned and operated since day one. They know that times are tough for all of us, and that's why they have not and will not raise prices on their world-class skincare. 
I love the eye cream. The minute you put it on, you can feel the firming effects and it has a lovely, very, very subtle fragrance. The results are real. Millions of Americans are in love. GenuCell guarantees results or your money back. And sign up for GenuCell's best-in-class rewards program at checkout for an extra 10% off your order and a complimentary gift set. Go to GenuCell.com slash beg to differ. That's GenuCell.com slash beg to differ. And enter my promo, beg to differ, for an extra 20% off at checkout. And right now, every most popular package includes GenuCell's immediate effects for results in as little as 12 hours. Go to GenuCell.com slash beg to differ. GenuCell.com slash beg to differ. All right, Bill, I'd like you to respond to anything that you've heard so far because we've hit pretty hard on the really kind of sick Republican culture of worshiping guns. But arguably, some Democrats don't do themselves any favors when they play into the Republican sort of narrative. People like Beto O'Rourke saying, yes, we're going to confiscate your AR-15. We are. That's kind of unhelpful. Do you agree? Well, let me first affirm that I am most definitely fed up that will frame all of my remarks. And I'm going to be antediluvian in my response, Mona. I am a proud member of the last administration that had the guts to ban assault weapons in 1994. And David, who knows this issue a lot better than I do, may have a dissenting view But the studies I've read about the consequences of the assault weapon ban indicate that it was effective. Did it eliminate the problem? No, because existing assault weapons were grandfathered in, so the effects kicked in only gradually, but they were significant enough to be notable in a study conducted just a few years ago. Does the Second Amendment guarantee the right to bear bazookas? Have we lost our minds? Every interpretation of each one of the Bill of Rights is subject to rule of reason limitations. The current regime is, by any standard that I can recognize, entirely unreasonable. But I think it's a cop-out to talk about a sick culture, unless we're the only sick culture in the advanced industrial world, which I don't believe. We're the only sick culture that allows 18-year-olds to buy multiple assault weapons. I mean, we can get lost in the details, but I don't believe that American culture is responsible or solely responsible for mass murders. I just don't. I think a legal regime that has tied itself up in knots, aided and abetted by the Supreme Court, is what is holding us back from at least talking about reasonable responses to this situation. You know, if you detect a tone of impatience in my voice, you're right. I think we're beating around the bush, frankly. Okay, David French, I'm just going to give you the last word here. People say, look, when you look around the world, you see that other countries have the same amount of mental illness that we do, 
They have the same problems with family structure in many cases. They have even histories of violence, but they have very different access to guns. And, you know, we have, I think half of all the mass shootings in the world are located right here in the U.S. Do you really think that no amount of regulation of access to guns would make a difference? I don't think that the most commonly discussed remedies in response to mass shootings, you know, I talked about the red flag laws, which are a pretty new development actually in the debate. But a lot of the things that we talk about, universal background checks, large capacity magazine bans, assault weapons bans, I just don't think there's evidence that they have a material effect. I mean, again, this is something that we've talked about for a long time. And they also carry some of their own costs. You know, one of the things that we are worried about in this country is mass incarceration. One of the things that we're worried about in this country is incarceration that disproportionately falls on people of color and other historically marginalized communities. And when you increase the scope of criminal law, it has a cost. It has a cost to it. And one of the things I want to know is if is the cost in increased incarceration, increased incarceration that will disproportionately fall on more vulnerable citizens, is that going to be offset by benefit? So we can't talk about these things like, well, you just pass along what's the harm that can be done. Well, the harm that can be done is incarceration for people. And what's the benefit that we get from it? inconclusive. And when you look around the world, the picture is really quite more complicated than a lot of the rhetoric around the issue would suggest. So it's absolutely 100% true that a place like Europe, especially Northern Europe and Western Europe, have a much lower rates of gun ownership and much lower rates of homicide. But then if you go south of our border, across the entire South American landscape, you also have much lower rates of gun ownership, much lower rates, and much higher murder rates, much higher. And so there's a lot of factors that go into this that are not necessarily directly related to the number of guns equals X outcome, or that the state of gun control equals X outcome. And and we just can't talk like it does. If you go back to the 1980s, for example, the ability to carry a gun outside the home was far more restricted than it is now. I mean, even Texas, even Texas, you did not have a right to carry a gun outside the home. And you had a much higher murder rate in the US and in many of these years, a much higher suicide rate. And so I think one of the things that happens in a lot of the gun control conversation is that we look at a policy and we think, I think this should help. And we really want it to help. And we really feel it could help into our bones that it could help. And I have no sympathy for the gun fetish movement, the Christmas card deal, and all the open carry that's going around. I've written about that. But in a lot of the gun control debate, I think we have a menu of policies and we say, I really feel like this will help. And there's no evidence that it will help. And so that's why I think there's, on the thoughtful gun rights side, there's some frustration because there's this sense that locks in that if you don't agree with gun control A, B, C, or D, then you don't want to stop mass shootings when you're saying, wait a minute, I know that gun control A, B, C, and D doesn't impact mass shootings. And so I think that that's one of the big issues here is it's so much more complicated than a lot of the public debate would indicate. 
I noticed, David, in something that you had written recently that you declined to name the shooters when you were itemizing yes. them, which I also have done for many years. Uh, never use the names of these people, and I can't prove it, <laughs> but I do have the sense that there are so many copycats, the uh, desire for fame, even infamy. There is evidence that because of the way the shooters study up on one another, shows that they are inspired to do this in part for the attention. And so denying them that attention and certainly declining to publish their manifestos, God knows, mm -hmm. is just something we can do, even if we can't 100% prove that it would help. <laughs> it doesn't hurt, right? Right, not to, exactly. Not to, yeah. Bill, you had one more uh, point? I wish we had another hour. Just very quickly. First of all, we need to compare apples and apples. I think the United States needs to be compared to other advanced industrial societies and not to the folks south of our borders. I think that's an apples to walnuts comparison. That's point number one. Point number two, we have a factual dispute about the efficacy of the 1994 assault weapons ban. Perhaps in some future conversations, we can elucidate and tease out that dispute. And point number three, in order to avoid the deaths of so many school children, you bet I'd be willing to tolerate an increase in incarceration rate. And I don't really care what the hue of the person incarcerated is. I think it would be great if we stopped incarcerating people for drug offenses and started incarcerating them if they possess assault weapons, period. Okay. Uh, by the way, if anybody would like to put some of these studies in the show notes, I'd be happy to include those. David French, you mentioned Iran's study, and Bill Galston, happy to include anything that you would like about the uh, assault weapons ban. All right. With that, we will take a short break and move on to our next topic. Well, you may think that I am obsessed with Omaha Steaks, but I insist that's not true. Last night, we had Omaha Steaks chicken for dinner. So that was excellent. I marinated it with a little olive oil and garlic and lemon, and it was fantastic. So you guys, if you want to enjoy the chicken and the other meat and the steaks, you have to go to omahasteaks.com and type beg to differ in the search bar because they have a fantastic deal. Why? Because it's Father's Day. And what do men want? They want steaks. Dads want steaks. So visit omahasteaks.com and type beg to differ in the search bar and order the Dads Want Steaks package for just $99. This limited time package includes 16 mouthwatering entrees he's guaranteed to love, like smoky tender bacon-wrapped filet mignon, gourmet jumbo franks, and their air-chilled boneless chicken breasts. And for a sweet finish, they also have delicious caramel apple tartlets. Makes you hungry just thinking about it. And as a special gift for my listeners, when you type beg to differ in the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package, you'll also get eight free Omaha Steaks burgers, 
These burgers are full of bold, beefy flavor made from 100% Omaha steaks, and now they're bigger than ever at a whopping six ounces. So they are fantastic. They come individually wrapped, so easy to defrost and put on your grill, and it's just beefy and delicious. So don't wait. Send Dad more than just a gift. Send him an experience he'll love and can share with you. Go to omahasteaks.com and type beg to differ into the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package. You'll get 16 entrees and four desserts plus eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. Omaha Steaks isn't just steak. It's the best steak of your life. Guaranteed. That's omahasteaks.com. Keyword, beg to differ. It has now been three months since the Russians invaded Ukraine. And David French, I was struck by a piece you wrote saying that despite the first flush of excitement when Ukraine seemed to be pushing the Russians back and saving Kiev and so forth, that things aren't going so well at this point. So can you explain what your view is about where we are? Yeah. So we all know that Russia suffered a catastrophic defeat early in the war. They launched a really, quite frankly, if you're familiar with sort of the principles of modern warfare, an unbelievably reckless attack aimed straight at the Ukrainian capital. And they attacked on a huge front, dividing their forces, and got absolutely walloped in the Ukrainian north, just defeated comprehensively in the Ukrainian north. And that's when the eyes of the world were focused on Ukraine. And so it kind of set a narrative in that said, Ukraine is kicking Russia's butt in this war, that Ukraine is triumphant in this war. And what Russia did is what Russia often does, which is absorb its early loss and double down on Russia being Russia. And what I mean by that is massive, indiscriminate use of firepower and manpower to attempt to achieve military aims. So they refocused in the East, and they've just begun this unbelievable military offensive that is sort of based on an unbelievable, prodigious use of artillery and firepower. And as Zelensky said, the Ukrainians are now losing about 100 troops a day. About 20% of Ukraine is in Russian hands. The Biden administration has recognized the new reality of the war by approving, sending a really the most potent weapon we've sent to Ukraine by miles, which are these long-range rocket systems called HIMARS. And right now, the Russia is not making the kind of gains it wanted to make early in the war, but it's literally putting the Ukrainian military through a meat grinder, and it's creating a dangerous situation in the East. Not one like a blitzkrieg, but one where they chew up their Ukrainian military and also combine that with a blockade of Ukrainian food sources moving out of Ukraine. And you see the outlines of the Ukraine War 2.0, which is try to grind the Ukrainian army to the dust on the east slowly but surely while creating a food insecurity globally unless Western powers lift sanctions. And as a strategy, we don't have a great answer for that yet. Linda, it's an example, isn't it, of the unbelievable damage that a single human being, in this case Putin, can do to millions upon millions of other people. I'm not even just talking about 
the suffering that is being inflicted on Ukrainians, which is horrific. But all of the people around the world, people who rely on Ukraine and Russia, both of whom are big grain producers and oil producers and so forth, where supplies of food are going to be, or they already have been disrupted, put that on top of the disruptions already existing from the pandemic. And we may be looking at famine in some of the poorer parts of the world because Vladimir Putin has his ego needs. And because he has absolutely no regard whatsoever for human life. I mean, that's the bottom line. Of course. Uh, it's not just Ukrainians, you know, soldiers that are dying. Russian soldiers are dying too. And some of these are very, very young men who have no idea what uh, they've been thrown into. Yeah, many of them have behaved appallingly. They've committed war crimes. They've done other things. And, and in part, I mean, as I'm sure David could affirm, that when you see that kind of behavior on the part of soldiers, it usually bespeaks the poor leadership that those soldiers have. I mean, soldiers generally need to be kept in line. They need to follow orders. Uh, and you need to have people in command who behave as professional soldiers, not as war criminals. It is a very scary point. And we've talked about this now for three months on the program. I've been from the very first, and I will maintain it to this uh, late date, that I don't see this war ending without more being done on the part of the West. And if that means more being done with more direct involvement, so be it. This is a travesty. This war is not going to be the end of Putin's ambitions. He's already got, you know, according to President Zelensky, 20% of Ukrainian territory. He's taken other territory uh, before this, and he will take more in the future. There is nothing that is happening to Putin right now that is going to stop him from this campaign to try to rebuild his idea of the old Soviet empire. And I'm glad we're sending weapons. I'm glad we're sending more advanced weapons. But until we can stop the kind of attacks that are taking place and until the Ukrainians are able to use weapons to strike at Russia directly. I don't see this war ending, and I certainly don't see it ending in a way that satisfies justice. Damon, I'm sensing from Linda's comments that she sees this as sort of the parallel to Hitler's ambitions and that could have been stopped at the Sudetenland and wasn't and could have been stopped at Czechoslovakia and he wasn't and so forth. Do you see it that way? No, I don't. I'm not really one to uh, to draw those kinds of uh, Hitlerian analogies, and I don't see this really as parallel to that. It, it certainly is terrible, and I've been, you know, in, in these last three months, you know, listeners who are used to hearing me talk about foreign policy here and elsewhere have perhaps been a little surprised that I've sounded much more aggressive and hawkish than I tended to be in the wars that grew out of the war on terror. That is true. I think this is different, and I think the stakes are higher and call for a more aggressive American response. And I think largely the Biden administration has done that. 
And that includes the escalation and weaponry that we've seen recently. So I think we're doing what needs to be done. I, I also, though, sort of side with Biden, who, who also has been talking recently about not sending the kind of offensive weaponry that would allow Ukraine to actually fire weapons deep into Russia itself. Um, I think the idea of trying to get Ukraine to invade the mainland of Russia in retaliation for this is is foolhardy because they'll never be able to accomplish much of anything other than expand the war and draw forth a more even more aggressive Russian response. But it would very easily lead to direct American and NATO involvement, which I think would be a terrible mistake. I, I mean... Russia remains, despite the military uh, surprises that we've seen over these three months, the weakness, the, the fact that now, yes, they're making gains through, as David put it, uh, kind of meat grinder strategy and techniques, but they can't even take Ukraine. They can't take the uh, Ukrainian capital. They might get 20%. They might have a secure land bridge to Crimea and not give it up to Ukraine, which was hoping that maybe it could get that back a few weeks ago when things were looking a little bit better. But it cannot take Ukraine. It could not at all threaten an actual NATO power. I do not think that there's anything that we've seen that would lead one to conclude that Putin is about to or could in any way succeed in invading, say, Poland or even any of the Baltic states. He's pinned down on the parts of Ukraine that abut Russian territory and is using these brutal tactics so that he can call it a day at some point and say, look, we achieved our ends, even though they're very different than the much more ambitious aims he had at the start. So I think it's horrible to endure, to have to sit and watch this, let alone to have to live through it if you're in Ukraine. But I really don't think we have any other choice but to keep doing what we're doing, keep arming Ukraine, giving them the strongest chance they possibly can have to defend themselves and maybe fight to a stalemate that limits the losses. But beyond that, the hope of arming Ukraine so they can actually, say, kick Russia out entirely, let alone kick them out all the way back to where battle lines go all the way back to 2014 when Putin seized Crimea. That's very unlikely, it seems, at this point. And it's bad, but I, I don't really see any other alternative at this point. Bill Galston, I'd like you to give your evaluation of how President Biden has handled this. I think he deserves pretty good grades for the most part, but there were a few things that were not so great. One of them was his assertion a few weeks back that Putin could not remain in power, which made it seem as if our support for Ukraine was about removing him and that I didn't think that was very wise, which I think Biden has scolded his staff about. But these boasts that come out of the administration about the intelligence that we are sharing with Ukraine that is permitting them to kill Russians and sink the Moskva and so forth, that doesn't look very good. But give your evaluation on the whole. There have been some tactical errors, as you say. But in the main, Ukraine has been the Biden administration's finest hour. And it's been their finest hour, I think, for a very simple reason. 
rather than being back on their heels, they've been ahead of the curve from the very beginning. The intelligence community got it right, and the administration had the good sense to trust the intelligence committee's assessments. They have been talking to everyone and forging common purpose across a wide range of responses to Russia. And so I find it hard to pick too many nits. Let me also put together David's analysis and Damon's analysis. First of all, I think David is absolutely right that the Russians pivoted from a war they didn't know how to fight to one that they do know how to fight. And if you just follow the detailed progress that is uh, laid out every day in the daily reports from the Institute for the Study of War and other military experts, it's clear that they are making slow, steady progress. Let me give you, for what it's worth, my sense of how it's going to play out. I think that Putin has adjusted the war aims. He's dialed them down to control of the two provinces called oblasts, I believe, in the trade of Donetsk and Luhansk. You know, he is very close to the objective of controlling all of Luhansk and Apparently, developments on the ground in Donetsk in the past 48 hours have opened the door to further advances there. My best guess is that before the end of the summer, the Russians will have achieved total control, at least in the military sense, not the political sense of those two provinces, that they will conduct phony referenda to back up their unilateral declaration of independence for those two provinces and in effect incorporate them into Russia in one way or another. I believe at that point that Putin will declare a ceasefire, and then it's a moment of truth for the Ukrainians. And I suspect very strongly that at the end of the day, we're going to end up with East Ukraine and West Ukraine in the same way that we ended up with North and South Korea after the Korean War ceasefire. I don't know what the Ukrainians are going to do if things play out the way I fear they will, but I am not convinced that the unity of the West can be maintained indefinitely if there's a ceasefire in place de facto on the Russian side. You know, I know that Linda must be very unhappy as she listens to what I'm saying, but I don't think there's a realistic chance that the United States will go to war by itself with Russia. And I think there's a zero chance that we can convince the rest of our allies in Europe to go along with such a strategy. David, first of all, do you agree with Bill on that? And second, war is always kind of a black box and you don't really know how things are going to go. And one of the things that I'm curious about is that the stories that I have read about the pinch that the international sanctions are taking on Russia's economy and on Russian life are just, they're really unprecedented. Taiwan announced it's no longer going to send microchips, crucial to lots of military hardware and so forth. One of their airlines has announced that it has, you know, a few more weeks and then because it cannot get spare parts from the West, it's going to have to 
reduce drastically the number of planes in the air because it has to keep some on the ground and use them, you know, cannibalize them for spare parts. And I'm asking for you to speculate here. Is there any chance that just over time, because of these very, very severe and unprecedented sanctions, Russia's ability to wage war will be materially damaged? So yes and no. Yes, in one sense, the ability to bring super high-tech weaponry to bear. It's very hard to, A, replace high-tech weapons once destroyed. So you know, if you're talking about the difference between a T-62 tank, which they're pulling out of storage, which is early mid-Cold War era, or a T-72, which is mid-late Cold War era, versus a T-90, which is their more up-to-date tank, it's very hard to replace the higher tech weaponry for every one of their gen 4.5 fighters shot down. It's going to be hard to replace those at any kind of scale. So that's the yes part of it. The no part of it is that they're not relying on that stuff anymore. So they're basically moving down to world war one slash world war two style tactics involving very low tech artillery and They can keep that up for a really, really long time. They have an enormous amount of ammunition. Replacing that ammunition is not a heavy lift. They have an enormous amount of artillery. Replacing that artillery is not a heavy lift. On the terms that they've chosen to fight, they can stick with it for a while. Now, what does that mean, though, for the Russian civilians and the Russian nation and its economic hardship? Well, again, here they do have an advantage in that people are still buying their oil. Like Europe may not be buying their oil as much. It's still buying oil, but they're still selling oil. They're not defaulting on their debt yet. And they also have the food weapon that they're wielding. And we don't know how that's going to work out. And the last thing that I would say is if there's any national population in world history that has demonstrated that it can bear enormous hardship if it chooses to, it's the Russian population. And so I believe the sanctions are indispensable, especially when it comes to putting pressure on the Russian military machine. But the sanctions, I don't believe, are going to win the war for Ukraine. I think that the Russians have reverted to their standard military tactics. They can sustain them for a really long time. And While one can hope that the Russian people would overthrow Vladimir Putin, that's much more of a hope than a plan. So do you agree with Bill that the likeliest outcome is going to be an East Ukraine and a West Ukraine? You know, I would say that's the most likely outcome. And the only real question is where are the borders? And is it an actual armistice style ending like in the Korean War? Or is it just an extended low intensity warfare like we saw in the Donbass from 2014 to 2022, where Mm. it never really ended? It's just the major offensive operations ceased. That's the big question. Now, there is a scenario where Ukraine could push Russia back, but I don't see, and again, we don't know everything. I don't see that The Western allies are pursuing that strategy with Ukraine, which would involve the provision to Ukraine of some very powerful offensive weapons, including, for example, Western tanks. Okay, thank you. Damon Linker, you wanted to add something? 
Uh, yeah, I, the only thing I wanted to do is put something on the table to discuss on, at a future episode of the podcast when things uh, have developed a little more uh, on the ground, which is this question of what happens with the sanctions that we have levied on Russia for its actions. The weird way that sanctions tend to work is that once they're imposed, they become a kind of new baseline so that lifting them becomes a kind of reward. And if the scenario that Bill sketched out turns out to be what happens, which I do think is probably the most likely outcome, I think he's right, where Russia effectively bites off a substantial portion of eastern Ukraine, calls it either kind of puppet regime that's ostensibly independent, but not really, or absorbs it into Russia proper, does the West just eventually say, oh, well, I guess that's the way it is now and, and we're going to lift the sanctions and go back to some kind of normal? I don't really see that happening, frankly. Now, I know the Europeans will probably try to find ways, especially on energy, to at least reach some kind of an accommodation, at least in the short to medium term. But it is a real question. We've really isolated Russia in a kind of unprecedented way, very different than the way things were prior to the invasion. And is that now the new normal, that Russia is effectively excluded from the community of nations in a way that marks a very, very different era in geopolitics? I suspect it is, and we haven't even begun to really think through what that looks like as a real long-term scenario. Duly noted, yeah, that will be a topic to continue to pay attention to in the future. And with that, we will turn to our highlights and lowlights of the week after this brief break. Friends, the most important moment of your financial life could be right in front of you. Experts predict a recession bigger than 2008 may be coming, which means you could lose 27% of your wealth overnight. But the good news is that if you prepare like the experts, you've got nothing to worry about because they're investing their wealth in hard assets. In fact, Top financial experts say there's one that's safer than gold. In other words, it's one that can help you protect and grow your wealth, which explains why so many billionaire investors invest 20% of their wealth in it. I'm talking about fine art. And thanks to a game-changing company called Masterworks, you can get in for a fraction of the price. Despite the market turmoil, they've already handed investors over 30% returns, and not once, but three times in a row. They currently have over 400,000 users, so offerings can sell out in three hours or less. But Masterworks is giving my listeners priority access today. Just head to masterworks.com and use promo code beg to differ to get started. Again, that's masterworks.com and use promo code beg to differ Before deciding to invest, carefully review the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. We are back. Linda Chavez. Well, I thought I would end my participation this week of a very depressing show with a depressing low light. John Hinckley, who some people will recall, was the man who tried to assassinate President Ronald Reagan in 1981 and who was for many years in St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital and then was released to his mother's care a couple of years ago, apparently is about to get 
all of the supervision that he's been under since 1981 lifted. He is going to be free to live as an entirely free man. He's going to be free to sell his artwork, which, of course, people will want to buy because he's the guy who tried to kill Ronald Reagan, and to publish his music and become famous for the fact that he tried to kill an American president. I think this is very unfortunate. The judge says that he has had treatment and that he is in fact sane now, even though he was judged insane and found not guilty as a reason of that in 1981. I don't think this is a good thing. I consider it a low light and yet one more bit of depressing news in a very depressing week. Okay. Well, you know, we don't usually do this in the last segment, but I'm going to say I beg to differ, Linda. (laughs) I think 40 (laughs) years is enough. Uh, But anyway, okay, let's move on to Damon Linker. Certainly the most interesting and stimulating uh, read uh, that I had this week comes from a long sort of digressive uh, and very interesting op-ed published in the New York Times by a man named Nate Hockman, who's a young conservative at National Review. And the essay is titled, What Comes After the Religious Right? Which is, uh, you know, given that we're only a, a couple of weeks supposedly away from the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, which would be the greatest achievement of the religious right after a 49-year battle to get it done, is a pretty provocative headline because there are going to be a lot of people who think the religious right has achieved its greatest victory right now. But Hockman actually uh, indicates from his close hand inside study of the contemporary right that actually, as with the rest of America in general, uh, the conservative movement and the Republican Party have become increasingly secular, and that the phenomenon of Trump and the post-Trumpian politicians like Ron DeSantis, that these people are an expression of a much more secular kind of conservatism than we used to have in this country. And that this means that actually, despite the great victory for the religious right, I say great in quotes, um, because I don't support it, but their achievement in supposedly overturning Roe v. Wade is actually something like an expression of the religious right's new role in the conservative movement as a kind of backseat player, uh, that there can be some, uh, you know, coalitions formed within the movement on the right that former members of the religious right will appreciate and like, but that it really isn't in the driver's seat and will actually be more of a kind of bit players in the right of the future. So this is definitely for someone, if you spend your time thinking about uh, conservative politics, this is a must read. So I recommend it. And your new Substack newsletter also will be keeping a close eye on events happening on the right. I may actually be writing about that essay in the Substack. So yeah, there's a synergy going on right here. Excellent. David French. So I have a highlight and low light that are intimately related to each other. Okay. The highlight is Top Gun 2, which Mm. I saw um, Friday night, IMAX, third row center, so that I could like literally feel the F-18 take off from the deck of the carrier. Mm. And then my low light, are all the people, including my pop culture guru, the Bulwark's own Sonny Bunch, 
her using the glories of Top Gun 2 to denigrate the original, (laughs) which is its own magnificent cinematic creation. So highlight Top Gun 2, low light all of those voices online saying (laughs) bad things about Top Gun 1. All right, Sonny Bunch, you have been warned. (laughs) All right, Bill Galston. Well, I just note for the record that people disgorging a total of $150 million from their wallets in one week emphatically agree with David's assessment. (laughs) Yes, I I can't wait to see it myself. No, I can. Um, (laughs) I also have a highlight and a low light intimately connected. And the connection is Joe Biden. The Biden highlight is figuring out a way of providing the Ukrainians with advanced artillery, long-range artillery. Uh, And I think it's one more example of deftly negotiating an apparently contradictory situation and finding a solution. The low light is the president's admission yesterday that he knew nothing about the impending baby formula shortage for months after the industry did. Now, I'm going to take him at his word on that, which means that there was a colossal failure somewhere high up in the White House. Because as I wrote in my column last week, the whole point of government is to anticipate things that the rest of us don't have time even to think about. And that is the sort of issue that should have sent warning bells off in the White House, based on my experience in the White House, it's a hanging event for someone, and it better not be a low-level flunky. All right. Thank you. I would like to draw attention. I don't know whether to say this is a highlight or a lowlight, because it's a piece that ran in Politico by Michael Strain, who has been a guest on this podcast, and Catherine Abraham, an economist, They both are economists. And it's called Biden's About to Make a Big Mistake on Student Loans. And we can't be certain that that's going to happen, but it sure looks likely. And so here's the relevant part of what they have to say. Read the whole thing. But what would the administration say to a person who struggled for years to pay off her student loans, finally becoming debt-free last month? or to the people who chose to attend their local community college rather than more expensive four-year college because they did not want to borrow, or to the people who avoided debt by serving in the military to qualify for GI Bill benefits. And they go on. So the unfairness of it is glaring. The fact that it benefits wealthier people at the expense of less wealthy people is even worse. And there are better ways. There are things like pay-as-you-earn plans. And finally, there's one more problem with this whole plan, which is that it only contributes to this death cycle that we've been in for so many decades, where the federal government keeps subsidizing and bailing out universities, thereby encouraging them to raise their prices and thereby encouraging students to incur yet more debt to pay these outrageous tuition fees. So all around, a loser. Hopefully the president or somebody on his staff will read that and think again. All right. With that, I would like to thank our guest, David French, who is, again, if you don't read him, you are missing out. So 
Thank you, David, for joining us. I also want to thank the rest of the panel. I want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer this week was Joe Armstrong. And I want to thank all our listeners. We will be back next week as every week. 